What's up, guys, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. Here's what to check out on TheRinger.com as we head into the 2019 NBA All-Star Weekend. Dan Devine is writing about the five most interesting NBA teams, Shea Serrano's The Disrespectful Dunk Index returns, and Kevin O'Connor analyzes Steph Curry's evolution and how he changed the game of basketball. Also, don't forget to check out Bill Simmons' NBA trade value rankings and much more on TheRinger.com. And welcome to The Recapables, a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, where we talk about the TV that everyone is talking about right now. My name is Allison Herman, and I'm joined by Claire McNear to talk about Abducted in Plain Sight. Claire, how are you doing? Doing well. How about you? Great. I would like to just note for our listeners, in case they're concerned, this is just a one-off podcast. True Detective is still on the air, which means that we are still running our True Detective after show, hosted by Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion, uh, The Flat Circle. So that's going to be back on the air this Sunday, which means that there will be a new episode of our podcast as well. So fear not. But for now, we are here to talk about uh, the latest Netflix offering that has taken over the internet. We are going to get to our awards in just a second. But first, I'm just going to get some of the plot synopsis out of the way so I can clear the way for Claire to give her amazing insights. So, in short, Abducted in Plain Sight is a documentary that, according to multiple headlines, including The Ringers, must be seen to be believed. It was directed and produced by Sky Borgman, and it's a 90-minute film that recounts the kidnapping, or rather multiple kidnappings, of Idaho 12-year-old Jan Broberg by family friend Robert B. Birchtold. Initially, it was released last year under the title Forever B, but the movie has become an online sensation since it was uploaded to Netflix last month, as we have seen many times in recent months. Claire, you wrote a wonderful piece about this for The Ringer, a wonderful website. So I'm going to throw to you for our first category, which what is just your tweet length review of Abducted in Plain Sight? Like, what did you think of this? I mean, this is slightly longer than a tweet, so I apologize. But I mean, there are so many just (laughs) what the shit moments in this in this show that it's it's kind of hard almost not to be sort of flip about it because there are just so many times that your jaw drops when you're watching it. So I guess my my shorter review would just be that, you know, if what you're looking for in a true crime story is something totally wild that does make your jaw drop like this, this will scratch that itch. Yeah, you did ask me before we went on mic if you were allowed to swear. And I believe my response was like, (laughs) it would be difficult to talk about this documentary without saying things like what the shit and what the fuck and what the insert whatever expletive here. But that kind of feeds into like my own personal response, which as someone who consumes like a truly unholy amount of Netflix content as part of my job, my main response was this is like the only thing on Netflix I have seen that I can even remember that I truly wish were longer because this is very fixed on just like telling the story of what happened between Jan and B and it's only 90 minutes so it's very compact but that just means it compresses an insane amount of information and an insane amount of insane things happening into a movie and then just kind of drops the mic and walks away and like lots of other Netflix things like making a murderer or the keepers have been these like extended serious looks at communities and this is literally just like here's a crazy thing that happened right i i think that it 
probably could have used um, more context. I mean, I, I found myself at the end of it both really not wanting to spend more than 90 minutes with this story because it's so dark and it's so hard to watch, but also really kind of wanting to understand it better. And And you're right that it does move really, really, really fast because there's so much kind of plot to to what happens. And so much of it is just so bizarre that, I mean, the the first kidnapping when, when Birchfield first takes 12-year-old Jan Broberg to Mexico, that happens within the first 10 minutes of, of the show. So, I mean, it's, it's doing a lot really, really, really fast. Yeah, truly, like, every time I would think they were kind of done with the crime part and moving to the aftermath part, I would look and see that there was like a full hour left and then there would be right. some new layer added to it. I should also mention that this is definitely going to be a full spoilers podcast and there is a lot to be spoiled. <laughs> um, but to that end, you know, our next category is just why is this show a thing? Like, obviously, basically the entire internet has been talking about this for a couple of weeks now. And why do you think it's caught on as much as it has? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just... It's such a, a weird story and such a shocking story. And I think the part that has kind of caught people's attention is um, the role of Jan's parents, who uh, pretty much the entire documentary is told through um, the the like voiceover of the, the Broberg family. So it's Jan, it's her parents, it's her sisters. Um, and there are a few other people, but mostly it's, it's them. Uh, the parents... It's sort of a horror story about growing up in the 1970s, I would say. I don't think this was a typical <laughs> 1970s childhood. But, you know, the, the, all the stereotypes about like, oh, kids just, you know, took off on their bikes and they came home at dinner time. It's sort of like, uh, you know, just the really frightening extension of that. Um, the parents allowed a lot of things to happen under their watch. Um and a lot of it didn't work out very well. So I think that that has kind of baffled people and um, made it this kind of discussion. Yeah, it definitely reads like a story someone made up for a stranger danger PSA that turns out to be like terrifyingly real. I think you you bring up a good point that like the format, I think, is also kind of interesting. It's very bare bones. It's almost entirely, as you mentioned, talking head interviews with the five members of this family that was affected by this horrible tragedy. And then these like sepia tone, not particularly high production value reenactments that I guess try to depict some of B's charisma and like how this was able to happen. But they also look old because this happened in the 1970s. It's not like the best or it's not the most seamlessly made documentary I've ever seen, but it also goes down really easily because it's just 90 minutes. So you can just race through it and then like immediately take to Twitter to vent all of your thoughts. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I did not love the reenactments. And I think part of that um, is because they show a lot of really horribly disturbing things. And uh, I mean, maybe that kind of adds to our understanding of the extent of the horror. But, you know, you you see a child being raped. And I mean, it's an actress, but you you are kind of zoomed in on the face of a young woman who is an actress. But it, I mean, it's really hard to watch. And they're, they're, they do have some footage of just like old family videos. And they kind of bounce between um, the like actor reenactments and the, the actual footage in a way that I kind of found confusing at some points. And they do have some recordings of old phone calls um, between Birchold and Jan and the parents. Um, but then they also have points where they have 
a girl or an actress who sounds very young reading some of her older letters um, that Jan wrote when she was a very young girl. And it's really disturbing. It's really kind of hard to watch. And maybe that's sort of part of the effect because it is such a difficult, dark story. But I mean, there, there were parts where I was kind of squirming watching it. Yeah, I also think it's kind of important to stipulate that this was not a Netflix original production. It was acquired and then distributed by Netflix, which I think you can tell both in the sense that like it is not longer. I think if maybe one of the constraints was budget and if they had more money and more time to do this, they could have like padded it out a little more. But it also meant that some of the production value aspects of it were like a little distracting, at least to me. Like um, a lot of the principal interview subjects like Jan and her mother are interviewed not just like multiple times, but in different outfits and in different just like compositions of the interview shots. And it's not always woven together, I think, as as seamlessly as it could be. And that does sound like a little bit of a trifle when it comes to dealing with something as harrowing as this, but it did sometimes take me out of the experience. I don't know if that was true for you as well. Yeah, I, I definitely. When I was watching it, I mean, I kind of noticed they were doing. There are there are times when they're in different outfits, which was a little confusing. But then there's a point where, um, like, the first two thirds of the interview is with Jan, where she's on camera, she's got brown hair, and then suddenly she's got blonde hair. And what I assume was her last interview. I'm not sure when it actually took place chronologically, but all of a sudden she looks very different. And the first time I watched it, I was like, wait, is this one of her sisters? Like, I'm very confused about where we are in this story. So it w- there were just some kind of strange production choices that I'm sure you know budget figured into. Yeah, and I think with a story that has this much twists and turns, you kind of want to keep your audience with you and make sure that right. they can like follow what is happening as much as possible. I also don't think we've really like delved into. So obviously there's the first kidnapping, which I guess right. is relatively straightforward. It's a really good family friend who Jan describes as her second father. He offers to pick her up from I believe it's like, or take her horse riding one day and gives her right. what he tells her is medication, turns out to be a sleeping pills and abducts her. There are like several levels that happen after this. So maybe we can quickly run through those before we go to the next award. So we have some context, but can you tell me a little bit of of just like the specifics of what happens after she's abducted the first time, including that it is the first time of multiple kidnappings? Right. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there are so many moments where your jaw kind of drops. So she's kidnapped. um, She's drugged heavily over, you know, some period of time. um, And Birchtold, who I think was 38 at this time when she's 12, um, and she'd known for years uh he has like an rv and um drives her you know drugged um into mexico and um begins as she's kind of fading in and out of consciousness to play this tape that is purportedly um the the voices of of two aliens uh named zeta and zethra i believe um who tell jan um as she's very confused and i believe held down with restraints that um she is in fact half alien herself and that um she it is imperative that she now carry out a mission and the mission is that she needs to bear a child by the time she turns 16 um, and that that will save this alien planet from destruction. Um, and then she's kind of led to believe by the tape, meaning by Birchtold, to believe that the male companion who is to help her do this um, is Birchtold. And he, meanwhile, has faked um, 
their abduction by aliens. Uh, he's, you know, all cut up because he broke out the window of his own car, which I think was an attempt to foil authorities. Anyway, this is very long and very confusing, which is telling of what this documentary is like. But um, he proceeds to, you know, sexually assault her and rape her um, as part of this mission that she believes, um, you know, she's carrying out for for the good of the world. Um, and then, you know, eventually after, I think, a little more than a month, um, they're located in Mexico. They're brought back to the United States. And the first kind of what in the world are their parents doing moment maybe comes um, when shortly thereafter, they're convinced by Birchtold's wife because he's married and has, I think, five kids of his own. They're convinced to sign an affidavit saying that their daughter was not kidnapped and that, in fact, they'd given their permission for this whole Mexican thing to happen. Um, and so he does not I believe spent any time in jail um, after that. So anyway, a couple years go by and then Jane goes missing again. And uh, she's located at a Catholic school in Pasadena where Birchfield had taken her and put her under a fake name um, and convinced the sisters who worked there that he worked for the CIA and that he and Jan had just barely escaped Lebanon and they were hiding. And so the sisters shouldn't say anything if anyone came looking for Jan. Anyway, there are ten, like 10 other crazy things that are happening as this is all going on. And she obviously is ultimately located at this school. Um, but there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah, there's also so the aspect that I would add to that is the first initially, like when she goes missing, Birchtold's wife convinces them not to call the FBI, basically for just like, right. it's all in the family. You know that he wouldn't harm her reasons. Eventually, law enforcement gets involved. But then the way he was, she, both of them, I guess, were able to convince uh, Jan's parents to sign the affidavit saying she wasn't kidnapped was because, I guess, drum roll. Right. I don't even know how to, <laughs> I don't even know how uh. to proceed. Like, <laughs> make a preamble to this. Basically, Birchdold had, in addition to grooming Jan herself, had seduced independently both of her parents into extramarital affairs, both to, I guess, get their guard down, but then eventually it's basically used as blackmail, particularly his homosexual right. relationship with her father, and basically uses the threat of that getting out as a way to keep them silent. And then... In addition, I I think truly like my most what the fuck are you doing moment of the documentary was that after she's returned, not only uh, are they kind of in his general orbit still, her mother like resumes or properly starts an extramarital affair with him after he had kidnapped her daughter, which is truly wild. And the daughter, of course, um, both is convinced that she has to bear a child, but also wants to spend time with him and is acting out against the parents. And it's just truly terrible. This happens all over again. And you hear a phone call both between Birchfield and her mother basically saying, like, I heard from her and she's been prostituting herself. And the mother's sort of shockingly casual about that. And then when Jan herself, who you can hear is like a, a small child, is on the phone right. with her parents and they're like screaming and crying and she's kind of blasé and it's it's really disturbing and this sort of feeds into one of our next categories was the most important scene or moment in this film and to me it was the phone calls because so much of the experience of watching this is just like how could you let this happen how did this happen and the phone calls are like one of 
very few pieces of primary evidence where you can actually like hear them going through this. You can hear him manipulating them. You can hear them being upset. You can hear Jan, who's like so confident that she's fine. And that, you know, it didn't obviously totally work for me, but it it did the most to help me like understand where everyone was. But I don't know what your vote for most important scene is. Yeah, I mean, I I think certainly the one that's kind of gone viral because it is sort of the most one of the most shocking um, kind of twists in the plot of this this thing is um, the moment that the dad kind of reveals that he did have um, at least one, I think, probably a series of sexual encounters with Birchold. I, I wrote down the quote because it's it's kind of delivered very casually. He's talking about like, you know, Birchold had told him he was really stressed out and his relationship with his wife wasn't great. And uh, they go for a drive. And um, and then Broberg, the father of Jan, this is before her kidnapping, but still he goes, and I quote, I was dumb enough to reach over and relieve him in an act of masturbation. <laughs> Which is is quite is quite the plot development. Um, but I think maybe a more telling moment comes a little bit later on, um, in the wake of Jan's Jan's returned from the first kidnapping, um, has not yet been kidnapped a second time. Uh, her mother is carrying on what sounds like was a pretty serious affair with Birchtold, and uh, Jan's father Bob decides that he has to seek a divorce because because of this affair. And so he files for divorce and um, he's talking about this moment on camera and he he tells the camera, you know, that was the worst day of my life. And and listen, I'm sure this was a very bad day. I'm sure it was horrible. But for that to be the, the number one worst day in this whole thing is kind of, uh, I, I don't know, it's it tells you a little bit about where they were and maybe I think, where they still are. I think I took that to mean like that was the moment where he like, understood how far it had gone, like that it had cost him his family in an even more literal sense than having his daughter kidnapped. But yeah, I totally understand isolating that or just both of them letting it to get to the point where they almost got divorced in the name of this person who had already done them like grievous harm is truly wild. Um, I actually was thinking we could maybe... Like, maybe we'll get to the MVP later, but there are a couple categories here that I think are designed for, like, not uh, rape and child abuse-related stories. So we'll probably skip over the breakout star and the memes, although (laughs) there are some memes if you go looking for them, but we want to be sensitive on this podcast and aware of everyone, and we want to treat this with the gravity it deserves. But there's a segment on the Recapables, Rewatchables Extended Universe called Picking Nits. And I think usually it's like, how did Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper write a song in eight hours? But this time, I think it's probably the place to put... You know, some of the things that the documentary maybe skips over or lies or just I think all true crime tends to leave you with questions. That's sort of what we like about it, that it lets us play Reddit detectives. But even for that genre, I think this left us with a lot of follow ups. So did you have some that you wanted to share? Yeah. And we talked briefly about this before, but the the element of um religion in this story is not really explored it's it's briefly mentioned we know that um the brobergs and the birchtolds were all members of the lds church we know i believe that the brobergs are still part of it um it it kind of 
is is in and out of the story. Um, you know, they they actually met Birchtold through the church, I believe. Um, and it in kind of a, a dark turn of it, um, earlier in the year that he first kidnapped uh Jan, he had been reprimanded by the church for what is described, I think, as a, a relationship with a young girl. So this was something that the church was kind of aware of and was handling internally. Um and at some point, he he's told, I think, in the wake of this, um, which, again, we don't learn very much about, he's told to um, to seek some counseling. And then he comes back and he tells the Broberg parents um, that as part of his therapy, um, and it turns out, of course, that this therapist was not a credentialed person and had no particular expertise or business doing anything like this, part of his therapy um, was that he needed to uh, sleep in be- in Jan's bed with her. And he did this four times a week for six months leading up to her first kidnapping. Um, and her parents, you know, allowed it. They thought that they were doing, doing a solid for their friend, I guess, um, you know, helping him get over his own traumatic childhood experiences. Um, and, you know, again, like the, the church was kind of enabling this in, in a weird way. And, and there's discussion of... Um, of how after the first kidnapping, when they all come back, and again, like Birchtold was not did not go to prison for this. Um, he he's kind of welcomed back by the same church. He's continuing to go to the same church that the Brobergs go to, and I think one of the parents describes, you know, people kind of patting him on the back and being like, "Oh, you know, we we've heard you were sick. You know, so glad to see you're doing better. Like, we'll get you there." I mean, p- people were kind of circling the wagons in a way that ended up being obviously enormously destructive, but it's not, it's not really analyzed in this. And I think, again, that goes back to what you were saying that I do sort of wish that there was more, more to this. I think I wish that there, you know, it had maybe been a mini series or, or a longer documentary that could have explored the context and particularly, you know, kind of the church's role in this. Yeah. I think social context just in general is like the biggest thing that is missing from this. I think the church is certainly the biggest part of that, but it also, I'm sure, you know, religion played a role in this as well, but it's implied that the fear of being outed as someone who would engage in homosexual activity is so extreme that it prevents the Brobergs from seeking any form of legal restitution for their daughter being kidnapped. And there's no explication of that. It's just kind of left to speak for itself. And there's no, you know, attitudes have changed or like this is how Idaho was homophobic at the time. That was something that I think certain staff members of The Ringer picked on is like, well, why didn't they make more of that? The whole sexual blackmail thing seems really wild. And then there were a lot of interpersonal dynamics. Like it's not really clear how Jan and her parents, either whether they went through a rough patch after this or if they did, how they got through it. But like basically um, Jan's mother, with Jan's assistance, wrote a book about this whole ordeal. And my main question was like, how do you go from my mother conducted an affair with my abuser and let my abuser sleep in bed with me for six months to like, I'm going to trust my mother to tell my story. And Jan Broberg, who is currently an actress, actually, uh, has taken to Twitter a couple times in the last few days to sort of speak her piece on this and said, manipulation and grooming are not understood by so many. It happened to my whole family. This man was a master and my parents saved my life. They're the bravest people I know, willing to try to help the rest of you to see what they didn't. That is the only reason we told our story. And then she followed up. My parents survived the worst nightmare that any parent ever has. They didn't see the pedophile. He looked like a nice father of five, married, business owner, church member. The grooming was slow and steady over two and a half years. We hope to help you see what they didn't. 
basically, she clearly is on their side now. And I can certainly understand how she would get to that place. But I would be interested for, you know, maybe an extended version of the story to explore that and maybe show. Right some friction between them because I think that's like the biggest logical leap that a lot of people really bridled at, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I mean, they touch on it very briefly towards the end of the documentary. Um, you know, she does, uh, her parents both talk about the kind of their own struggles to forgive themselves. And she talks about kind of coming to peace and, and um, you know, feeling that, you know, anger about all of this is not is has not been helpful to her, her in her own kind of healing process. Um, I think I also um, there's a very very moving moment um, most of the way through when uh, Jan actually as an adult comes face to face with Birchtold um, when she's trying to seek I, I believe a, a form of a restraining order um, and uh, and she's she's been going around with her mother um, after this book was published in, I think, 2003 and and giving talks and and talking about, um, you know, uh, ped- pedophiles and and um, abusers and kind of how, how that works and how they worm their way in. And um, and they come face to face in a courtroom and um, and she basically calls him, uh, you know, an abuser to his face and, and has this moment of like, I've you know, I've figured out the situation and and I've, you know, reached a certain kind of peace with it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of free of that hold that you had over me for so many years. And it, I mean, it's a really moving, powerful moment. And um, we get just a tiny bit of kind of the explanation of how she realized um, that, that, you know, she was not actually in love with this guy, that, you know, she had been um, abused for many years by a person she trusted very much. And and I just, I would love to have seen kind of more of that because it, it, she's a fascinating person and, and um, that part of her story is so interesting. Yeah, I was really struck by her composure and forcefulness in that moment. I thought it was, because yeah. I mean, she says, like, I was shaking, I was afraid. Yeah. And I obviously, t- that's a completely logical response and I understand that, but you don't really see it from the footage. And it's just this, like, really grainy from a distance stock courtroom footage and you just really only hear their voices and it's really really stunning. So maybe a right. good way to kind of segue out of the the truly dark part of this would be talking about who the MVP is. Obviously, I think we mean this in a different way than like who won <laughs> a movie or whatever, but it is worth talking about like who comes out of this as someone that you really have a lot of respect for. And at least for me, the answer was pretty clearly Jan, who has gone through something truly, truly terrible and seems to have a handle on it and really dedicated herself. She says in that confrontation that her whole aim is to raise awareness that this is a kind of predation that happens. That's something that they say a lot, actually, is that there wasn't really a conception of what child molesters or pedophiles were and there wasn't any awareness this was like a threat to your children. And she seems to have turned this like truly terrible thing that happened to her into a reason to try to help other people or at least prevent this from happening to them as well. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I mean, it is kind of fascinating to watch. Um, and her parents kind of say as much that, you know, they just didn't. I mean, even the 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 person I'm going to talk about is is the FBI agent who kind of led the investigation. But even he says that he was not um, in his training as a law enforcement officer, like he just never, they hadn't really talked about pedophiles. There were, there was a lot of talk of, um, of stranger danger that, you know, a creepy stranger could snatch you, but, but a trusted family friend and, and somebody who, you know, was, you know, a pedophile is, it was just something that they had not really 
conceived of as as a, a real threat um, and so didn't really know how to respond. But I think the FBI agent is an interesting character who pops up a few times in in the documentary. And comic relief is not the right way to, to, to describe <laughs> his presence in this because nothing about it is funny. But in this horrible story where all these awful, weird things happen and are allowed to happen, he's kind of the one person who maybe is coming throughout the story from um, an approach similar to maybe a viewer of just being like, what the hell is going on here? And he mentions that um, <laughs> he, he talks about like he's he's been thinking about this case in all the years since it happened um, and and that the family didn't even contact him for five days after after Jan was first kidnapped. And then he actually had to convince them that it was a kidnapping. They did not really believe that that's what it was. They thought, you know, it was a simple misunderstanding. But he says, no, this is a kidnapping. And the second time she's kidnapped, they didn't contact him for two weeks. And he, at one point, has kind of a little rant where he calls the parents naive and, and talks about how, you know, like he was busy neglecting his own family, trying to solve this case. And there they are signing this affidavit, letting this guy go free. Um, so, I, I mean, he's he's an interesting character in this story. He's kind of like the objective third party who can provide some perspective right. and also kind of be the viewer proxy in terms of just expressing total disbelief at what's happening right in front of him. There's a really, I mean, I hesitate to call it funny, but it is pretty funny moment where he's just narrating what happened in the wake of the first kidnapping. And he said, as you know, would be common sense, he advised them to steer clear of Birchfield and to no longer associate with him at the very least if he's not going to serve jail time. And then he goes, they did not do that it's just like very spaced out oh, and yes. it's just it's a great like movie trailer voiceover moment in an right. otherwise truly dismal story and yeah it is interesting that you mentioned how they didn't really have any conception of a pedophile because the other thing I kept thinking of was like I guess they didn't really have any conception of therapy either because if my teenage daughter after such a terrible experience where being so yeah. distant from me and continuing to have the compulsion to associate with this guy, I feel like I would want to bring in a third-party medical practitioner. But yeah, the mom is just like, well, you know, she went back to school and everything seemed like it was fine. And it's just like, mm, I don't know that I would approach that situation that way. I'm just glad that we're all aware that therapy can do wonderful things. And, <laughs> you know, if this is something that is weighing on you, you can always pick up the phone and that's great. But... I think maybe now that we've touched on the various eyebrow-raising moments of which there are so many in this documentary, let's play Netflix algorithm for a second. And if you like this, if you are someone who was truly hooked on Abducted in Plain Sight, what else is out there for you that you might also be interested in? I think there's obviously a ton of true crime to choose from right now, but is there any particular like follow-up or jumping-off point that you would recommend after this? So one of the things that this documentary made me think a lot about was actually the last true crime documentary that I saw on Netflix, which was Conversations with a Killer, Ted Bunny Files. And that, I mean, rightly got a lot of criticism for um, kind of erasure of victims. Um, but I think that that documentary did a really good job um, kind of placing what was happening in context. Um, you kind of learned a lot about what what was going on in society and and specifically, you know, I mean, not just in like a color sense that they did do a really good job that this documentary did not do of using kind of stock footage from the time rather than weird reenactments. But um, they talk a lot about kind of what we were just saying about pedophilia, where, where people didn't really have a sense of serial killers. It was not it was not a thing people 
thought of. It was it was hard for law enforcement officials and and um, for for you know people in media and 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 um, just just people generally to co- conceive of somebody who could do these horrible things and kind of trying trying to find the language for that. Um, and so I, this made me think a little bit of that. And uh, I think parts of that were were done a little bit better in that one. Yeah, I'm definitely falling down on my job a little bit, and I actually haven't seen that, but that was a very convincing recommendation, so maybe I will loop back it's, it's in time for... It's very uplifting. In time uh, for... Well, you know, I got to do my research for Zac Efron as Hot Bundy when that <laughs> truly breaks the internet naturally. when that happens in a few months, which will also be on Netflix, actually. Um, but my... Oh, yes. So I also have spent the last few days watching another true crime series. It actually um, doesn't come out until February 15th, which is the day after we're recording the podcast, but it's called Lorena. It is a four-part Amazon docu-series about Lorena Bobbitt. And it's one of kind of a now like recurring series of image rehabilitation of widely vilified 90s woman. You kind of know what's going to happen. It's a one of those like, what were we thinking? We were so awful to this person. But it is kind of exactly what this is not, like similar to the Dead Money Dapes. I think the first episode is what abducted in plain sight is just like a minute by minute play by play of this happened and then this happened and this was how it became a big deal. But then the next few episodes, it really zooms out. And by the end, you're talking about like the state of abused women in America and the awareness of domestic violence and the passage of the Violence Against Women Act. And it's both a really affecting portrait of this one person who has been through so much, but it also does a really good job of balancing that with like the wider perspective. So between the two of us, that's the Ted Bundy tapes, which are on Netflix and Lorena, which is going to be on Amazon Prime. And to close out, we've just been talking about lots of horrible stuff. So we're just going to each pick our own silver lining from this documentary, something that we can take away and maybe be less than depressed about the entire state of humanity from. Claire, did you have any like positive takeaways from this? Yeah, I mean, it is kind of what we were just talking about, but I I did find the kind of closing note of um, forgiveness, particularly towards her parents, um, to be a, a, kind of a nice place to leave the story. And I mean, and it's affirming, I guess, to see somebody who had been through such horrible things seemingly be at a place where she'd found some peace um, and and had kind of moved productively forward with her life. And and um, I don't know, it was it was very powerful. So that was appreciated. And I thought it kind of left in a good place. Yeah, I suppose if this family can survive this, then really anyone can get through anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's an uplifting note to end on. Thank you guys so much for listening. Claire, thank you for joining me. And again, True Detective will be back on Sunday and Jason and Chris will be discussing that on this feed. Thanks, Claire. There's never been a show that made me yell like, oh, fuck you at the TV. <laughs> right? Like, I never, I rarely yell at the I TV. I'm not like, one of those people. Yeah. And I did it like three or four times. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. you.